This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. Hi, my name is Dr. Lou Diaz, pastor of Butte Bible Fellowship located at 2255 Pillsbury Road in Chico. And I'm providing inspirational teaching for you from God's Word each week. Listen to my weekly radio program, Encouraging Words with Dr. Lou Diaz, at 10 a.m. on Saturday or 10 a.m. on Sunday. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. Today's message is entitled, How to Talk to Anyone About Jesus. It's part of the Acts series, The Church in Action, A Journey Through Acts. And uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. As you look at Acts 17, you notice that we are in the second missionary journey. Paul and Silas have taken young Timothy with them, and they are heading along the Ignatius Way. That's the main highway towards Rome. It's like going on the I-5. And they pass two cities, and they go to Thessalonica, where there's a huge Jewish synagogue. Let's read about that in Acts chapter 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege we have of looking together at it and speak to our hearts as we desire to speak to others about the good news of saving faith and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, how to speak to anyone about Jesus, Acts chapter 17. There are five components to this, and the first one is this. Share the scriptures with questions. The second is explain prophecies about the Messiah. The third is bring new believers to church. The fourth is avoid those who oppose you. And the fifth is move your listeners from their worldview to a biblical worldview. Let's look at each of these points as they come straight out of Acts chapter 17. First of all, how do you share with anyone about Jesus? Share the scriptures with questions. In Acts chapter 17, verse 2, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul's practice was always to go to his fellow Jewish countrymen and share the gospel with him, with them. He would say in Acts, excuse me, in Romans 1.16, 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So he always took the gospel to the Jewish people first in the synagogue, where there were also God-fearers, Gentiles, who were religious and looking for God. And more times than not, some Jewish people would believe and become completed Jews or Messianic Jews, and some God-fearing Gentiles, Greeks, would receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. But also there would always be opposition. But he always shared the scriptures with questions. I came across this wonderful observation on the internet called sharing the gospel with one verse. If you had only one verse to share with somebody about Christ, what would it be? Romans 6.23 says it all, doesn't it? It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Someone has said, you could just sketch this out on a napkin. You could draw uh, one side of the cliff on one side, another side of the cliff on the other side, a big chasm that you can't get over. Uh, But on one side is uh, the wages of sin and death. On the other side is the gift of God, eternal life. And the only way to get from one side to the other is by trusting in Jesus Christ. Uh, He is the answer to salvation. So that's a wonderful way to share Scripture. And when you share Scripture with people, you should engage them. You should ask them questions. So ask them, what does this Scripture really mean? How does this Scripture apply to your life? If this is true, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of, of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, how does that change you? You might ask a person, what's keeping you from trusting in the Lord right now? And the most important question that we take for granted, but we should ask this, is would you like to trust in Jesus Christ right now for your salvation? These are good questions that we need to ask. So share the scripture with questions. Secondly, when we talk to anyone about Jesus, we should explain prophecies about the Messiah. In Acts 17, verse 3, it says, he was explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Paul said straight out, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. You may remember that when Jesus was with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that he opened the scriptures to them. And he began with Moses and all the prophets, and he explained to these disciples what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And the disciples said, Did not our hearts burn within us? The Bible is all about Jesus. And it tells, it predicts, it prophesies in advance that the Messiah would come. And what Paul did in the synagogue was just lay out prophecy after prophecy, saying, look, I know you have an image of the Messiah, that he would come as a conquering king, and that he would get rid of your oppressors, which in this case would be the Roman government. 
but you misunderstand the scriptures. First, the suffering servant, Jesus, had to come and die on the cross for your sins and for mine. Then he had to rise from the dead. But he is coming again as conquering king. First he comes as lamb of God, then he comes as Lord of all. And so Paul had to explain that, and he did so pointing out these prophecies. Now, I went to Jews for Jesus website and looked up the 40 top messianic prophecies. And I just want to share a few of them with you because they're that profound. One of them is, of course, Isaiah 53. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, say about Jesus the Messiah, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus gave his sinless life for our sinful lives. He paid the penalty for our sin in full so we could be forgiven and receive his righteousness. Now, when you think about Jesus dying on the cross, it also says very specifically in Psalm 22 Verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what Jesus said on the cross. But it also says in Psalm 22 that they divided his clothes among them and cast lots for his garment. Now you may remember that in John chapter 19, verse 23 and 24, the soldiers didn't want to rip his robe, which was one piece. And so they gambled for it in fulfillment of Psalm 22 Verse 18, that's the kind of specific messianic prophecies that Jesus could not have any control of fulfilling in advance. They were fulfilled to show that he is the Messiah. You know, one of the prophecies that Jesus loved, which some might overlook, was in Numbers 21, 6 to 9, that just as Moses lifted up the servant and all who looked at the serpent was healed of their poisonous bite by the poisonous snakes, so all who look up to the Son of God will be forgiven of their sin and healed from their unrighteousness. So this is a very powerful verse where Jesus says in John 3 and verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Can you imagine Paul reasoning with the Jewish people from their own scriptures, showing them the messianic prophecies and their fulfillment? I'm going to give you one more, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. In Psalm 16, verse 10, it says, Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. In Acts 13, 35-37, this is clearly explained. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served his purpose in 
his own generation. He fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body did decay. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. That verse that David spoke was not referring to him. It was referring to his descendant, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, we could look at many other prophecies, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And that's a double fulfillment, because for him to be born in Bethlehem is to show that he is a descendant of David, because it says in Micah 5, 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And sure enough, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, the, magi, the uh, consultants of Herod knew exactly that this prophecy had to be fulfilled for the Messiah. Well, there were other prophecies about the Messiah being reje- the rejected cornerstone, the Messiah coming according to God's timetable uh, in Daniel chapter 9 that are profound. But we're going to move on here because the third thing that's important besides uh, reasoning from Scripture with questions and explaining Messianic prophecies when you're talking to someone about Jesus is make sure that new believers come to church. And these days, give them the Zoom information so that they could participate in church. Why is that important? Because a new believer needs to be rooted and grounded in Christ. It says here in Acts 17, verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. You see, Paul was not just interested in decisions for Christ. He was interested in disciples who will follow and obey Christ. And so it's not, it's not just important for people to trust in Christ. It's important for people to be rooted and grounded in Christ in the context of a local church. And the church at Thessalonica was a very vital church. They had turned from idols to serve the living God. One year after Paul was there in Thessalonica, he wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians letters to the Christians in Thessalonica, saying how their faith was radiating out and was well known in all of Macedonia and Achaia. Praise God that he told them about Jesus, they trusted in Jesus, and then they told other people about Jesus. And that's the way it should be. The fourth thing about telling other people about Jesus is that you need to avoid those who oppose you. It says in Acts 17, verse 10, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. You see some Jewish people in Thessalonica uh, grabbed Jason, probably a relative of Paul's that he and uh, Silas and Timothy had been staying with, and they brought him to the magistrates, and they said, as it reads in verse 6, these troublemakers are turning the world upside down. 
Isn't that a great reputation to have? That the Christians were having such an impact by sharing the gospel that they were turning the world right side up. The world's already upside down, but they were turning the world right side up through faith in Christ. But these troublemakers, the ones who were really bringing the charges against Paul and others, were saying they are committing treason because they're saying there's another king other than Caesar, and they're disturbing the peace, and so forth. Well, Jason had to pledge a bond That is, he had to put up either his house or his very life in promising and guaranteeing that these people would leave town and not come back. So that's why they sent Paul and Silas away, and they went to Berea. Now, this is the fun part. As I told you, Paul and Silas were traveling on the Ignatius Way, which is a major highway that leads to Rome. But when the Jewish people in Thessalonica caused this trouble because they were jealous, Paul and Silas went 50 miles off the main highway to a different town called Berea. So, you know, many major cities in Northern California are on the I-5. And you have to go off the beaten path to get to Chico. You have to go to the 99. And so, thank God that Paul and Silas went off the I-5 and they went to the 99 to get to the Chico of their day, Berea. And it says that the Bereans were more noble in character. They were open-minded. They searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was talking about regarding the Messiah was true. And it goes on to say that many of them believed. They trusted in Jesus as their Messiah, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So we could spend our time fighting those who oppose us. We can get all upset about what they're saying and the false charges they're bringing against us, or we can go with the goers. We could move with those who are being moved by the Spirit of God, and that's what Paul did. He avoided those who opposed him. Opposition came again, as we read later in chapter 17. It says in verse 13, but when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left him with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So two times in chapter 7 alone, we see opposition. Did that slow down Paul? Did he give up? No. He shook the dust off of his sandals and he moved on and he kept being faithful in preaching the gospel. Finally, when he gets to Athens, he looks around and he sees all these idols. Athens, they jokingly said, you can find more idols or gods with a small g than you can find people. 
Of course, Athens was named after Athena, who was the patron goddess of the city. And it was a cultural center, an educational center, a center for philosophy. 500 years earlier, people like uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, Aristotle uh, espoused philosophy, the science of discovering truth. And Paul came to this very famous city, but he was grieved as he saw all of these idols. And he had the opportunity to speak. They said, what, you know, you look like a babbler, which is a seed picker, a person who takes a bit from here and there and strings it together and with secondhand knowledge kind of spouts off a bunch of stuff. But we know that Paul was well-educated under Gamaliel and uh, was a brilliant man. He wasn't a seed picker. But you can imagine the reception that Billy Graham from uh, North Carolina with his southern accent had when he was invited to speak at Oxford. All the uh, sophisticated and cultured British people probably looked down at this hillbilly and said, what does this seed picker have to say to us? But that doesn't matter. Paul knew that the wisdom of this world is the foolishness of God. Paul knew that the gospel is the truth and that man's culture is mere ignorance compared to the revelation of salvation by faith in Christ alone. So he stood there boldly and he presented to these Greeks on Mars Hill. And here's how he started. Acts 17, verses 22 and 23. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Right there, Paul connected with the people. When he spoke, he complimented them. I see that you're religious, that you observe and you want to honor that there's a supernatural being. He also connected with them by using something straight from their uh, pantheon of many gods. I see you have an inscription to an unknown god. Just in case you, you miss one, you're, you're covering your bases. Well, he goes on to say uh, in verse 23, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul is saying, you have an unknown God, and I'm going to tell you who that unknown God is. And he's going to now reveal that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that he sent his son Jesus, who is the righteous judge, and that all people are to repent and turn to him. But you need to know his audience. It says in verse 18, there were Epicureans and there were Stoics. You couldn't have two philosophies that were more diametrically opposed to each other than the Epicureans and the Stoics. And by the way, I think these represent people's perspectives today. Let's go into that for a quick second. Epicureans believed that matter 
matters. Everything is physical and only physical. So we live for pleasure. And their motto was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And when you die, your matter just gets assimilated into other matter. And that's the end of you. So the Epicureans were the ones who were really saying, get all the gusto out of life. And so they would enjoy, you know, fine food and, and all pleasure. Pleasure was their pursuit. The Epicureans were about enjoy life. On the other side, you had the Stoics. And their philosophy was everything is spiritual. God is in everything, the trees, the rocks. Um, he's in everything, and we're all spiritual beings. And what we need to do is control the physical, because the physical is evil, and we need to endure life. Don't let anything get to you. Just uh, be stoic, be controlled, be disciplined. Um, don't hold on to anything tightly. So you have two philosophies, the Epicureans who went by feelings and experience and the Stoics who went by facts and by reasoning. And Paul comes with a message. It's not about enjoying life to the fullest because there's no life after this life. And it's not about enduring life because uh, you're going to end up being assimilated into the great spirit which is one with the creation. No, I'm talking to you about a creator who is above and distinct and separate from creation, who has provided a son named Jesus, and by knowing Jesus, you know God. Enter into life through faith in Jesus. That's the message that Paul brought to the Athenian philosophers. And here's his message. And let's read this. In verse 24, he talks about God being the creator, 24 and 25, Acts 17. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Can you imagine? Paul is standing there. He's facing the philosophers. Behind him are all these temples and all of these idols. And he's proclaiming the God who is the creator of all, who doesn't need a temple, who doesn't need sacrifices, who, on the other hand, actually gives us even the gift of life and breath itself. That's the God he's proclaiming. Then he talks about God as governor in verses 26 to 29. For from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own prophet, uh, poets have said, 
we are his offspring. So Paul very cleverly uh, explains to them, you think you Greeks are superior. You think that the Greeks are a special race and a group unto itself. You're no different than everyone else. God made everybody, and he put us in territories and nations and changes those boundary lines and those leaders that we might be disrupted enough to seek him. You see, when a person is in a rut, when everything is predictable, when they're comfortable, they feel self-sufficient. When their world is shaken and everything's upside down, they say, what's going on? Is there a God? I need something. And that's what this is talking about. And he quotes two of their poets. He quotes the philosopher Epitomides and the Stoic philosopher Eratus. So he's relating to their world. All truth is God's truth. And if it matches with the truth of the word, he wasn't afraid to preach it. So he adapted his message, but he never compromised the message. And finally, he talks about God as Savior, verse 30, where he says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And he talked about judge, God is judge, verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. How do we know Jesus Christ is the Savior and the judge? Because God raised him from the dead. There's no other religion that is based on the resurrection of a human being from the dead. Do you need encouragement? I want to share my spiritual gift of encouragement with you. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. Call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521 to find out how you can connect with our weekly worship services and faith-building messages from God's Word.